Hi, I'm Tom Clark from Global Public Affairs. Welcome to another edition of The Take. This, in fact, is our last edition, special edition of The Take, looking at the U.S. presidential elections. Um, It is, we're now just a few days away from what many people are saying is the most important election in U.S. history. I might amend that to say the most pivotal election in U.S. history. And, you know, when you take a look at uh, the, the partisans and to a degree the media, nobody's sitting on the sidelines on this one. This is an election where the partisans are saying, if my guy loses, this is the end of America as we know it. So that's how high people are saying the stakes are. One of the people who has been reflecting this all back to the American public and has been doing so uh, very successfully for a number of years, Ali Velshi of MSNBC. You see Ali, by the way, on weekends, 8 to 10 on MSNBC. Ali, uh, what a delight to have you. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a couple of months now. And can we just get a little conflict of interest out of the way just before we start? Okay, so you and I are friends. We've been friends for a very long time. Uh, You know, that said, there's nothing wrong with interviewing friends from time to time. And because we're talking about friends, here's where I want to start. I want to start in your living room or your old living room in North Toronto. Yeah. I had the privilege of meeting your mom and dad, Murad and Mila. And you wrote a couple of days ago a tweet thread that I found to be actually incredibly moving, but really important considering the times. And I'm just wondering if you could quickly take us all through what yeah. that tweet thread was. Go ahead. Well, I was uh, about 11 years old, and my dad, we'd we'd come to Canada in 1971. I was born in Kenya, but my parents were all born in South Africa. And we'd come to Canada, we'd become citizens, and my dad had decided to run for office. He was running for a seat in the Ontario legislature. And it was election night. Uh, I'd worked so hard on this campaign. My dad and I went home to sort of freshen up and get back to the campaign headquarters for the night that lay ahead. And we got back into the car to drive uh, to the campaign headquarters just a little before eight o'clock. At eight o'clock, we turned the radio on. The 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 broadcast had begun. Uh, obviously, the polls had just closed. It was too early for them to to call anything except for one riding, and that was Don Mills, where my dad was running. And it was uh, we had lost. The they had declared that the incumbent uh, who had been there for many years and was a, a minister in the government had won, and I was devastated. And I, I just couldn't, I was beside myself. We, we hadn't even reached the campaign office yet. And I, I said to my dad, I can't believe we lost. And he said, we were, we were, of course we lost. We were never going to win. And I said, what do you mean we were never going to win? Why'd you do this? What was this for if we were never going to win? He said, no, no, it, the, 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 it was, it was too much uh, of a task for us to win. We weren't going to win. I, I ran because I could, because coming from South Africa, he couldn't vote, let alone run for office. He couldn't even express views that were uh, not in line with what the government uh, said. So, he ran to put his platform forward and allow voters who had the absolute choice to decide whether they wanted to support him or support someone else. And they didn't support him. And it, it was I, I just never understood that before, that the, the exercise of democracy is for the exercise of democracy. You practice it so that democracy doesn't atrophy. Um, the idea that you're, it's a zero sum and, and you lose or they win was not in my dad's mind. This was really just about the idea that 
He could run. He could put his ideas forward, wouldn't go to jail for it, wouldn't get chastised for it, wouldn't get arrested for it, uh, and people could vote for him or not. And he was entirely satisfied that he had done his democratic uh, duty. He had come to Canada. They had given him citizenship. He had voted in every election since, and then he ran for office. And he, he, To him, he was being a good citizen. Well, not only was he a good citizen, but Murad went on to win a subsequent election and became the first person of Indian descent to sit in the yep. Ontario legislature, which is a remarkable achievement. And it sort of goes to the heart of one of the political questions I like to ask to new entrants into the game. And that is to say, do you believe in losing as much as you do in winning? Not do you want to lose? I don't mean that. Sure. But do you believe in it as part of the democratic process? So and you that must. Was, I, I just have to say, yeah. you must. Uh, that is, I think our understanding of democracy, the last four years in the United States has done one thing for so many of us. It has understood, helped us understand what democracy means, what participation in that democracy means, what the role of the media is, uh, what, what free speech actually is all about. We're learning more about things that we should have all uh, learned, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, through the last four years of American politics. Yeah. And the fact that now I think the number is well over 30 million Americans have already voted, which is an extraordinary number, history setting uh, mark. As of today, we're above 65 million. 65 uh, million. Yeah. Which has never happened before and may. And I underline the word may indicate that the sort of civics class that we've all been through in the last three or four months has actually produced results. We'll see if that means bigger turnout or not, but certainly something is happening there that is really quite remarkable. You know, anybody who's watched you over the past, well, I say three and a half years, any time from the time that Donald Trump was inaugurated to where we are right now, uh, you've never made any secret of your disdain for Donald Trump, the things he does, the things he says, and the things he stands for. What drives that for you? Well, first of all, what doesn't drive it is partisan politics. I have no uh, issue with uh, with conservative politicians or Republicans. And in fact, I have a, a real history of uh, not just friendship, but but interviewing them on my shows, even on MSNBC, which doesn't tend to do as much of that. Uh, Donald Trump is just dangerous for democracy. He's dangerous uh, for the, the things that keep the democratic uh, flame lit, uh, including journalism and freedom of the press and freedom of expression. So he has tendencies that reflect some of the worst things that have happened uh, in global history over the last hundred years or so. Uh, on one hand, I, I really credit him for tapping into a rich vein of discontentment. Um, and it's global, right? There's a, there's this, mm-hmm. whether it's income inequality or whatever it is, everybody in the world's mad about something and they've identified someone to blame uh, for it. In Brexit, it was immigrants uh, and refugees. In, in Western Europe, it's, it's also immigration and refugees. In America, it's kind of everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump has taken a group of people with legitimate grievance and has given them someone to point at. It's the wrong someone or groups of someones, but he has given them purpose. He has, he has tapped into this vein. Uh, I thought for a while that having tapped into it, that'd be amazing. He can actually fix it. He has had no inclination toward actually fixing it. He is fueled by grievance and wants to keep that grievance going. It is unhealthy for yeah. politics. It is unhealthy for democracy. Well, this is the thing, because it looks to me as if in 2016, as you say, he tapped into that anger and he was dealing with angry people. And some of them were very poor. Some of them were very wealthy. And it was sort of the, the, the whole spectrum of in, in between. I think there was a myth that he only appealed to the uneducated 
uh, white poor. Uh, and we now know that's not true. But it seems Correct. to me that over the past three and a half years, what he's done is he's taken those angry people from 2016 and made them angrier today. Correct. Because Correct. in the end, it is all about tactics. And tactics say that you win if people are angry. So keep them angry, right? Oh, that's exactly right. Whereas there was some hope that having tapped into it, he may come up with solutions because some of the things that make them angry, oh, it's valid. They're angry. Uh, we have not been fed good reasons for why we feel the way we do in society, generally, economically, over the last 30 or 40 years where we've seen uh, inequality grow. And you're right, some of it's economic and some of it's not. Uh, but he didn't do anything with that anger except uh, keep them angrier. It is very motivating. And that voter turnout that you talked about, we don't know how this pans out on election night. It could be a lot of his voters voting in bigger numbers than they did last time around. So we're not sure what he's doing with it, but that's fundamentally the, the identification of what the problem is. You know, one of the things I wonder about, and as you know, I lived in Washington for five years and was sort of deeply involved. That was during the George W. Bush uh, administration than I saw in the Obama administration. But when I take a look at who's voting now in presidential and, of course, the other races that are important, very important, like the Senate races, we'll get into that in a second. But I often wonder, you know, if the polls are right, if this is a big Democratic win and if they flip the Senate and if the Democrats own all three houses, Democrats are going to be very happy, at least initially, but, you know, 40 percent of the American population, the American voters have voted for Donald Trump and they believe in Donald Trump and they believe in Trumpism. So I guess my question is, yeah. this, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of where our predictions are. But what happens to Trumpism in the United States and that sense of grievance, that sense of anger? And now, perhaps in a few days, a huge sense of loss as well. Well, you've covered the world, so you know what this looks like in other parts of the world, including uh, in Eastern and Western Europe. For years after uh, after the war, you would see countries swing from left to right and left to right. And it was always confusing. It's like, is there not a big middle? And we always didn't see that sort of thing uh, in, in, in Canada and the United States because the middle was so big and so healthy. And now the middle isn't so big and so healthy, or at least not that loud. There's still a bigger middle than there are extremes on either side. But Donald Trump has so played to one set of extremes that I think there are a couple of things that could happen if he were to lose. One is that he doesn't leave the scene and he is the presidential candidate uh, four years from now and he is the leader of this uh, aggrieved conservative movement. The other is that Republicans take their party back. Uh, there are lots of Republicans who are now voting for Joe Biden who may not share a whole lot of views with Joe Biden. They just don't want Trump there. They think Trump is dangerous. They think he doesn't really um, advance real conservative values. So that could happen too. The third thing, which we're starting to see, and that is that if Joe Biden becomes president, uh, we're hearing reports that he is vetting certain Republicans for positions in his uh, mm -hmm. in his cabinet. So the idea that he really does go out and try and, and reconcile America. And I will say this, knowing having known Joe Biden and covered him for a number of years. It's possible with somebody like Joe Biden. He's not uh, an extremist within the Democratic Party. He's done a pretty good job of dealing with the uh, the real progressives in the party and trying to uh, bring them into the tent. But he's also made clear on several occasions that's not who he is. He's not looking to do some of the things that the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party is going to do. So I think everybody's going to have work after this election, no matter what the outcome is, in making sure that the next election doesn't feel as polarized as this one. It's not good for anybody. 
Isn't it interesting, though, you talk about what you're picking up now, uh, that uh, they may be vetting Republicans to move into certain positions in cabinet. There's nothing new about that. If you remember, Bill Clinton did that and brought in a Republican uh, Secretary of Defense because that was an area that was very important to the Republicans. And at the time, Bill Clinton in 92, uh, he owned all three houses. He had the House, he had the Senate and he had the White House. And those were the two worst years of his presidency because he could get nothing done. Uh, Which leads me, let me throw a theory back at you, that if biden wins and if he does you know if it's a crushing win where there's just no doubt about the electoral college or the senate and growing the footprint in the house uh let me try this on you so trump looks at the numbers realizes there's no disputing them the last thing he wants to do is sit around as a lame duck and then have to sit as a potted plant uh, to watch joe biden take the oath of office so he quits he quits Mm -hmm. on november 4th or 5th or whenever the appropriate time is but he gets Mike Pence to do a deal. Here it is. Mike, you get to be president. Your resume will always say former president of the United States, Mike Pence. But what you've got to do is you have got to pull a Jerry Ford. In other words, you have to grant me and maybe my daughter and her son and her husband a pardon. Uh, and then we're fine. Because I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that Donald Trump, if he loses and loses big, is more concerned about his own legal future than he is about the yeah. future of the Republican Party or anything else. What do you think? Yeah, so it's, it could be two things. There could be a big concern about his legal future and potential income and loans coming due. So there's a lot of reasons why it's really important for Donald Trump to stay president. The problem is some of the things that Donald Trump may face post-presidency might be state-level charges, particularly levied by the Attorney General of uh, New York State. Uh, and there's no Petition pardon James. for that. There's, there's no, no pardon for pardon. that. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that if Trump plays that game, anybody who was prepared to charge him might wait until, if President Mike Pence were president, that would end at noon on January the 20th, and Joe yeah. Biden is president, and then you can't you know, you can't pardon somebody for something that hasn't happened. So it's right. it's an interesting theory. Uh, I, I would also say this. Mike Pence still uh, has some attachment to the old Republican Party, and he may want to be president another time or he may want to be the candidate next time around. So uh, I think there'd be a lot of Republicans who would say, wow, that there's a lot of stuff that's felt dirty for three and a half years. This one feels extra dirty. So whether or not Trump can get other people to go along with him if he tries something of that nature uh, is up for debate. Let's just go back a little bit, uh, because maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, by talking about what happens on November 5th. Let's go back to November 3rd for a moment. Uh, When you take a look at the state polls, which are really the only ones that matter in this context, it seems inescapable that Joe Biden is going to win. Yes, there are five, some would say six battleground states. But even when you take a look at those and as tight as they may be, the the nod or the benefit goes to Biden in virtually all of them. So what I'd like to know from you is, is there still a realistic path to victory for Donald Trump or is it all over but the shouting? No, I think there really is. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm always wrong in everything I predict, so I want to start with that. <laughs> Secondly, you know, we, we're influenced by the bubbles in which we exist, and I have for two months been traveling to swing states. So my bubble... Uh, sees a much closer election than the polls do. Uh, I, I'm not even uh, I'm not as convinced as as the, the polls are that it is inescapable that Joe Biden wins. And then the third thing is I work on that uh, board at MSNBC that you, you touch and you move and you yeah. put different states. 
You do it very mathematically, well, Mathematically, thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you, I like it. Um, mathematically, there are lots of paths to victory. Um, some of them are not believable because, you know, a whole bunch of things would have to fall into place that, that don't make sense. But in the end, it will come down to two states, Florida and the one that I'm in, Pennsylvania. There was polling out maybe a month ago that showed Joe Biden 11 points ahead in Florida. And everybody who knows anything about polling or Florida said, that's not possible. Nobody's ever, there's never double digits uh, separating anybody in Florida. There's a flaw in the polling and you might as well accept that now. We don't know how big the flaw was, but there was a flaw. And now we've got polling that's got them neck and neck in Florida um, mm-hmm. and, and tightening races in some places. But I'm in, in Pennsylvania and I suspect this is where I will be on election night, by the way. I'll be in the streets of Philadelphia. Um, I think it's coming down to this. Uh, and if if Pennsylvania goes for Trump, he th- the number of paths to victory uh, expand greatly. And yep. he is doubling down on Pennsylvania. He's here all the time. He's uh, attacking Joe Biden on the fracking idea. Joe Biden has been less than clear and somewhat inconsistent on his view of fracking, which is a very big deal in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, so, so this may be what it comes down to. Pennsylvania, Barack Obama made a, an inference to this in his election and it wasn't very good, but Pennsylvania is two places, right? It's two states. It's a, it's, it's, it's cities, uh, urban populations with universities and hospitals and very large African American populations. And then it's the country. It is rural America. And I live right in between them. I live in a, in a, in a suburb, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, which is in itself a phenomenon, although they tend to be more democratic. But that's what Pennsylvania is. So Joe Biden will clean up in Pittsburgh. He'll clean up in Philadelphia. I mean, he may get 95% of the vote in Philadelphia, but out there in Luzerne County, in Wilkesbury, in Scranton, in Bucks County, that's where it's all going to go down on election night. What those people decide to do may decide the next four years for America. And when you open your front door and go for a walk around your neighborhood, what are you picking up about suburban and rural Pennsylvania right now? Uh, Where I am, Donald Trump's message doesn't seem to be resonating, but that's because I'm very close to Philadelphia and everybody around me you know, if they go for a night out, it's to Philadelphia. There's there's Biden-Harris signs around here adjacent to Black Lives Matter signs. But if you get a little bit out of here, you start to see Trump-Pence stuff. Uh, and, and and keep in mind, this is uh, this is where it all happens, right? The, the, the place where you go from being a city to being rural America is where you go from people watching MSNBC or CNN to Fox, where you go from newspapers to radio. Uh, and, and the problem is the same people are not hearing the same arguments. So I'm out every week talking to voters all across America, and they don't hear the same thing. So it's not like they're saying, well, there's Donald Trump's tax policy and there's Joe Biden's tax policy, and I actually like Donald Trump's better. It's not how anything goes down now. It's all about the story you heard on the network or on your social media about how Joe Biden eats little children and Donald Trump is the devil incarnate. You, you never hear, there's no policy debate anymore. Very few people can argue, I've listened to this, I've read that, and that's why I've decided I'm doing this. It is tribal right now in America. Yeah, and the, and the culture wars or the tribal wars in America are driving so much. And that's, you know, we talked about what happens to Trump ism after this is over and whether that transmutes into something else. But let's look at the Democratic side here, because, again, casting back a little bit to the Clinton years, 
when Clinton owned everything in Washington and he couldn't get anything done because Democrats famously, when they own everything, turn their guns on themselves. And and the left wing of the party fights the center of the party and the whole thing becomes unmanageable Uh, because the Democrats now are more divided than I ever saw them when I was covering American politics or living down in Washington. How fragile is the Democratic coalition right now? And what happens to it if it is a big Democratic win? So if you ask Democrats, uh, as I do when I'm out in the country, what what their most important, what the, the biggest issues are to them, you will get some saying climate. You'll have some saying health care. You'll have others saying uh, social justice. Uh, there's, a, there's an array of things, and they're all important, but, but that's how it works with Democrats. When you talk to Republicans, there are only three answers. Uh, judges, abortion, and if they're QAnon people, uh, child sex trafficking, which is a strange one, but that's, that's what QAnon and the conspiracy theorists think is the most important thing. But they're much more focused, and, and, and they have been able to sort of... Uh, uh, circle the wagons around the few basic things that are important to them, including the appointment of another Supreme Court justice. Uh, so I think Democrats do have to figure this out. Uh, I will say this. Let's say a third of the country supports Donald Trump, right? 33%. Let's call it that. 25% believe in UFOs. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But about the same number believe that Barack Obama was a Kenyan-born Muslim. So my point is, and they're susceptible to QAnon and conspiracy theories, Trump's got 25%, roughly a quarter of the country who did not, who never would have voted for Jeb Bush, who never would have voted for John Kasich, who never thought John Huntsman was a good candidate, uh, who never believed the Bushes were conservatives. Uh, he's got a bunch of people who trust no other conservatives even. Uh, and they are going nowhere. They're, they're like feral cats, right? They've tasted human flesh. They're not going to just disappear because uh, Joe Biden became president. Somehow, someone's going to have to work with that crowd. And, and that, that responsibility is largely going to fall to Republicans. The Democrats on the other side, uh, they're all banding around Joe Biden because they understand that that's a better alternative than, than Donald Trump for the things they need to achieve. But Bernie Sanders tells me on a regular basis that he is going to work to get Joe Biden elected. Then he's going to work to make Joe Biden the most progressive president in American history. That's going to be where the battle comes in. Yeah. You know, Ali, we're sort of coming to the end of our time here. But I, I just want to point out to everybody that not only have you got a good handle on what's happening in the United States and really at the forefront of reflecting that back to everybody, but you've also got a keen understanding of this country, Canada, and you know, we're in the position of watching sort of slack jawed a little bit as to everything that's going on down there and wondering what the hell does it mean for us up here? Because it's going to mean something. And, you know, on yeah. one hand, you've got people saying, well, you know, traditionally, you know, Canada always has Democrats in their hearts, but Republicans in their wallets because of the way the trade protectionism works in the United States. Right. Um it, But just walk me through from a Canadian perspective, if you can, uh, what should we expect and how do we prepare for either the reelection of Donald Trump for another four years? And maybe that's a really short answer, which is just go down to your basement and call me in four years. Uh, But also game out a Biden thing from a Canadian perspective. So I I think the trade issue and, you know, I was uh, two weeks ago, I was on the southern border and it was all about immigration. But the week before that, I was in Detroit. I was on Grand Isle, actually, 
adjacent to the Canadian uh, border. I actually tried to sneak into Canada for a minute, and the Canadian said, no chance unless you're going to come in here and uh, quarantine for, for two weeks. But uh, I think that for Canadians, what they have seen in Donald Trump was a ham-fisted approach to trade, which is fundamentally the most important matter to Canadians, other than security. Uh, mm-hmm. Security is, is, is sort of baked in. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, uh, having Canadians in the security uh, equation makes sense, and that's, that's largely there. The trade issue is important. And uh, normally Republicans would have embraced the longstanding relationship with Canada and said, all right, we got some things to work out uh, on the edges. But the idea that there is a reason why we have uh, free trade, uh, why we have NAFTA, why it came out of free trade, why that came out of the auto pact, Donald Trump has no institutional memory on any of this stuff. So it doesn't matter to him. So he was ready to, to, to break all the China in the attempt to deal with China. And I don't think anybody saw this coming. I don't think anybody saw it coming that he was going to take a massive swipe at Canada and, and, it was uncomfortable. So I think fundamentally the trade relationship between America and the United States is not going anywhere, but Canada would do better under a, a a more normal president of the United States. I don't think that means a democratic president of the United States just means if there was another Democrat, if it were John Kasich or it were Jeb Bush or whomever else might be there. uh, In that case, while it's not, Joe Biden makes the most sense for Canada because he will do what every other American president has done and realize that this special relationship is special. He'll make his first trip uh, probably to Canada and he will mend the fences that need mending so that this trade relationship and this this, you know, otherwise fraternal relationship can continue. Uh, I'm going to enrage my producer here because I'm going to sneak in one last question. And this is sort of a personal thing here. Listen, uh, you know, You've lived in both worlds. You've lived in the Canadian media world where we're proud to be balanced and objective. And and we do it so well, we become really boring and almost irrelevant. Uh, You're in another atmosphere now where the norm has become is that, you know, you if if you watch MSNBC, you're a Democrat. If you watch Fox, you are definitely a Republican. Two different ways of feeding information, views, and analysis to the people. You've lived both. Who's got it right? You do. Canada's got it right. Um, My way works if every consumer is prepared to consume from different places. But Mm -hmm. the... you know, the collapsing of, of our worlds into these media bubbles where we, you will watch a, a cable TV channel that's geared around how you think and then you'll have a reinforcement on social media based on how you've curated that, your friends or people who think like you do, means that you don't have the means or the ability or the willingness or the time to go outside that bubble and get more information. That's dangerous. Our output is not the problem. It's how people take it in. Uh, and, and people haven't sort of switched from the days where if you watched the news, you got some version of the news and a lot of it. Now you watch your news and you don't know what you're not getting, which leads to those conversations I have with Americans every week where they don't even know what the other side of the argument is because they don't consume it anywhere. So uh, until we find out a better way, uh, Canada's got it better. Okay. Ali, uh, we we truly are out of time, but I can't thank you enough. Uh, this has been so good talking to you. Uh, it's great that we've got, uh, you know, a deep operative operating in the United States. Uh, you're part of our deep state. Our you, state you may, you may have to call deep. your operative back someday. Let's see how things go on November 3rd. <laughs> You're always welcome up here. Uh, Ali Velshi, MSNBC, week ends between 8 and 10. 
one of the smartest journalists in the United States. If you haven't watched him, take a listen to Ali Belshi. Uh, you'll be much richer for the experience. Ali, my friend, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Well, that ends this episode. As I said, days away now from the most pivotal election in American history. We're going to be back after it's over to pick up the pieces when it's all over, except for the shouting and the crying. I'm Tom Clark, my pal, Ali Belshi. Thanks very much for being with us. We'll see you on the next episode of The Take. Thanks very much for being with us. That is this edition of The Take. By the way, if you want to follow me online, my Twitter handle is at TomClarkGPA. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future editions. In the meantime, I'm Tom Clark. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you on the next edition of The Take.